I'm going to be reading uh, the scripture from Galatians 5, 26, um, and through, through the uh, fifth ch- verse in chapter 6. It's in the back, it's in your bulletins if you want to follow along. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. It's the word of the Lord. Good morning to everyone. My name is Omari Hill. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Central. I'm not the senior pastor. Am I on? I'm not Howard Brown. Uh, our senior pastor is away right now on vacation, and so is our associate pastor, Georgio Hyatt. And uh, we miss them. And they miss y'all, believe us. Um, they love you so much, we practically had to force them to leave. Uh, and the other elders can attest to that. Uh, but keep them in your prayers. Uh, pray that God would enrich their time away while they're with their families and help them as they try to see with their wives and with their children. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series through Galatians. And before we start that, I'd like to begin by going back a little bit in the New Testament, going back into the Gospels. In the Gospels, we're told that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he knew that he was about to die. He knew that he was about to go to the Father. And so he told his disciples, I'm going away to the Father. And then he also said something that was pretty surprising. He told them, you know the way. And so then Thomas, doubting Thomas, He says to Jesus, how can we know the way if we don't even know where heaven is? And then to that, Jesus replied, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As many of you already know too well, the commitment to stay on that way, the commitment to stay on that road, the commitment to stay with Jesus is very difficult. The road to the Father is long and hard, and our load can be pretty heavy. The believers that Paul wrote to in this letter were familiar with this. They knew that keeping in step with Jesus was not an easy task at all. So the Apostle Paul wrote to them, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, fulfill the law of Christ. Remember, early in this letter to the Galatians, Paul said, that Jesus frees people from having to perform in order to please God. He frees us not to continue trying to prove ourselves to our neighbors, but to learn how to love our neighbors as ourselves. And a specific way to love your neighbors yourself, Paul says, is to carry one another's burdens. What kind of burdens was Paul talking about? Verse 1 in the text, it says, Brothers, If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual 
should restore him gently. Understand that when Paul says we should restore someone who's caught in a sin, he's not talking about catching somebody with their hand in the cookie jar. He's not telling you to always correct someone who's lying about the scores that they made at the last time that they were playing basketball. But he is saying that you should check someone who has developed a pattern of doing that. Many of us are caught in sinful patterns and constant temptations that do nothing but push us to take our eyes off of Christ and his grace. Some of us are in a place where we believe that it is up to us to save ourselves. The Spirit says to God's people in Paul's time and in our day, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. One of my favorite movies is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Anybody who knows me knows that. And um, arguably my favorite of, of the three is the last one, Return of the King. Some of you agree with that. And if you remember that toward the end, there's this, this dastardly creature, Gollum, who's been twisted by the ring of power. And he's following Frodo and Sam. And he's along with them as they're on their way to destroy the ring, right? To throw it into the lava in Mount Doom. And so Gollum wants the ring. And he tells Frodo this lie. He says, this person, Sam, right next to you, that you've trusted pretty much all of your life, you can't trust him. Just watch. At some point, he's going to want the ring. And then, sure enough, there comes a point where Frodo becomes really tired. And Sam looks at him with pity. And he says, Master Frodo, let me hold the ring for you. Let me help you share the load. And with those three words, Frodo freaked out. And he said, yeah, Gollum is right. Sam just wants the ring just like everybody else. And so tragedy of tragedies, Frodo tells Sam, although you're my friend, you have to go back to the Shire. I can't trust you. You can't follow me any longer. But many of us can identify with Frodo, can't we? It's hard for us to bear one another's burdens when we don't really know whom we can trust with our own weaknesses. Again, Paul wrote, if someone is trapped in a sinful pattern, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. These words can sound like death to most of us because many of us have stood before others with our temptations and our failures exposed only to be handled by not so gentle and not so spiritual people. We've shown our sins only to be sinned against. And sadly, this kind of injury has come by the hands of people who would call themselves committed, mature, and spiritual people. When I was growing up, I grew up in the church. And I grew up in a circle of many churches. And one of the most horrible things I used to hear about in church culture would be surrounding young girls who were promiscuous. Okay, granted, they were promiscuous. But then one of them got pregnant. And what would the congregation and the pastor do? They would force this young girl to stand before the whole congregation and offer an apology to everyone for what she had done. And then if that's not humiliating and bad enough, they would continue to ostracize her even after she made this public apology. Some of you have had more horrendous stories than that. How do any of us expect to have confidence in helping others with their temptations? How do any of us expect to have confidence in helping others with their temptations? 
Why is the church so dysfunctional in this area? After all, if loving each other is what Jesus wants, let's just do it. But I believe that Paul gives us the clue as to why we can't just do it. Look again at verse 26. It says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Do you remember that earlier in this letter, Paul said to the Galatian Christians that there was a time when they did not know God and they were given to various idols. But once they came to know God, they were set free from those idols. Yet the hard journey had just begun because just like you and me and every other person in this world, they had to begin battle with the chief idol of all people, the self. When people worship themselves, or think more highly of themselves than they ought, we usually call them what? Conceited. This is what Paul is saying. We will drain each other quickly and even cause some to leave the faith when we become conceited. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, Paul says, he deceives himself. Conceit comes from self-deception, and it is the chief obstacle that keeps us from helping one another. Conceit will show up in two ways. Let me outline them for you. We'll either, one, provoke one another, or two, envy one another. The person who's always challenging or provoking other people has an inflated sense of who he is. He seeks to gain honor for himself, and he believes he has the skills to do it. The person who envies others also has an inflated sense of who he is. Just like the person who always provokes people with all his formulas and rules, the person who envies others also seeks to gain honor for himself. The only difference is he doesn't believe he has the skills to do it. What Paul is talking about here is the root cause for both a superiority complex and an inferiority complex. Both people will not rest solely upon the dignity that comes from Christ alone. Each wants to achieve his or her own worth in this world based on self-attainment. One person seems to do pretty well, and the other one is failing miserably. Both of them are self-absorbed. The super-Christian may jump at the opportunity to restore a brother, but he won't do it with humility. He'll challenge you with his sense of self-righteousness, and try to get you back on the right track with his fail-safe techniques and proven methods, he may not even challenge you at all. Because he's so super, he'll think you should have known better and you need to get yourself out of your own mess. The Christian who takes the kick-me sign off of his back and puts it on his chest, he's not the best person either. He may help you through your struggles with gentleness, but he's not doing it in the spirit. He's hoping you increase his cool points somehow. Like those movies where the smart guy helps the cool girl, you know, with her math homework, hoping that she'll take him to the senior prom, and then he'll be, he'll have instant access into the in crowd. He doesn't give a rip about her education. He just wants to be down. On the other hand, the inferior feeling Christian may not help restore someone who's caught in sin because it involves confrontation. The last thing this person wants is not to be liked by others. 
We usually don't gain a whole lot of praise from other people when we have to confront them on their weaknesses. But there's another reason why a person who often inflicts himself will not carry another's burdens. I went to a pretty typical inner city junior high school with a cafeteria that's probably like that big, uh, probably about as big as a football field. And, you know, what, 200, 300 students in the same cafeteria. Um, that was just one grade. And one of the things that we did in this mass gathering of prepubescent kids, uh, we, w- we would have this, this game called snapping. Some of you are familiar with that. Um, some of you call it joshing, playing the dozens, um, whatever you call it. Pretty much we were teasing each other. And, um, you know, somewhere along the line in this game, there would be like one person who would get ganged up on. And that person would just take it on the chin. You know, it's just, okay, these are my friends. They're laughing at me. They got, got a couple of jokes off of me. Okay, that's great. And so things are just going. But then there always be that one guy on the side, that one guy in, in your group who is like, Okay, I don't want to jump out there and snap right now, but you know, it's going pretty well, so I think I'm going to jump in there and take a chance. And then he say something dumb, like, your mama's got one leg, and they call her Eileen. Like, you know, everybody's like, what? That's dumb. And so then what everybody does is they turn on that guy, and so he starts getting snapped on. And so you see, when we feel inferior, we don't want to engage other people and help them with their weaknesses because our own stuff might be exposed. You know you need help, but you don't want to help. You don't want the person that you're trying to help to know that you need help. Do you see? It's all nothing but conceit. It's self-deception. It's a longing for self-glory. So the question is, which complex do you have? Do you tend to be a messiah or a wet food stamp? The truth is, Most of us are caught somewhere between delusion and despair. But we've got to find a way out if the church is going to stay out of serious danger. What could happen if we don't learn how to bear one another's burdens? What could happen? For one, look again at the Galatian believers. Remember that the reason why Paul wrote this letter to them is because they were tempted to add things to Jesus and his grace in order to be assured of their value before God. They started out trusting in Christ alone, by faith alone, but soon his grace no longer seemed sufficient. Why? This letter suggests to us that the Galatian Christians began to notice some sinful patterns in their own lives and began to doubt that God made them into his children. Or maybe they were growing tired from particular trials in their lives, and they began to wonder if God had truly forgiven them. When I was about six or seven years old, my parents got divorced. And after that point, I saw my father uh, sometimes a whole lot, sometimes almost a whole year would go by before I saw him. And the tragedy about it was that he didn't just live in the same country. He didn't just live in the same state. He didn't just live in the same city, but he almost lived in the same neighborhood, and I barely saw him. But when I got to be in my, let's say, my early 20s, I began to feel like a man because I was starting to work, 
You know, I got myself a job on Wall Street, you know, shirt and tie, fresh and clean, you know, I was feeling good. So I felt like, okay, maybe I can relate to my dad now because, you know, I have a, a big job of my own. And so I can start talking to him. And so I did. I started reaching out. I started taking the initiative, you know, trying to bridge the gap. You know, I wasn't waiting for him to come to me. You know, I would go to his apartment. I would knock on the door and say, hey, let's hang out. And, you know, things started going well. We started talking. We'd meet for lunch when I was working. You know, I'd take the train up to Grand Central, and we'd always go to Models, you know, and this sporting goods store, and, you know, we'd go in there and look at basketballs and stuff. You know, good guy time, just talking about sports. I, I, I don't even like sports that much, but, uh, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, but it was great, you know, because this was good time with my dad, and, and we'd talk, and we'd talk about everything. We'd talk about things like social justice and race and, you know, being black and, and living in communities and just our city and how much we love it and that sort of thing. Um, and then in 1997, um, when I sensed a call to the ministry, my dad and I then began to start talking more about faith. And so then our conversation went to an even deeper level. And then we started um, talking more about spiritual things, talking more about um, our common religion or the lack thereof. And it was great. But then three years later, almost exactly one year before September 11th, I buried my father. What was I supposed to do with that? I tell you what I did. I felt like God hated me. I felt like God had forsaken me. I felt like God was paying me back for all the sins that I had committed in the past. And he was paying me back for how lousy I've lived my life as a Christian. I began to forget the gospel. I began to lose my faith. These believers that Paul wrote to were also slipping into this sinful pattern of unbelief, but they still desperately needed God. So what happened? Remember, the false teachers came along. They told these hurting believers that Paul had led them astray. Yes, you need Jesus, but you also need our five-step program to get God's favor. All you need to do is give up all your art, give up your rib dinners, give up your funny-looking clothes, and then keep all our rules. Then you'd be truly sanctified, blessed, and highly favored. Praise the Lord. Listen, there are people among us who are really struggling. You may be one of them. But we don't bear, if we don't bear each other's burdens, folks like these will become easy prey for false teachers and for a false gospel. There are plenty of authors and speakers out there just waiting to give you the right physical or mystical techniques and rules to make you feel like you're really on your way to getting God's presence. We can't just stand by. And let our neighbors get caught up in all that foolishness. Here's another danger for the church. Struggling believers are at risk of becoming enslaved to idols. Paul said, it is for freedom that Christ set his people free. 
But if a believer feels trapped in sin and thinks that God has forsaken her, she may voluntarily surrender herself to some functional savior of her own creation or of someone else's so she can still feel affirmed with some shred of dignity in the midst of this broken and messed up world. What things, what relationships, what ideals are waiting for us to be picked up as idols for our destruction? What are we willing to give ourselves to in order to deal with the pain of our guilt and the lack of assurance and dignity that we feel? It's time to carry each other's burdens. But at this point, you should be asking yourself, how in the world is anyone supposed to really carry another person's burdens? All of us fail at this. I believe the answer is in verses 4 and 5. Each one, Paul says, should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Okay, Paul, which one is it? Carry each other's burdens or carry my own load? I believe what Paul is saying is we need to stop the comparison game. Measuring ourselves to see if we're less, more, or equal to someone else usually gets us into trouble. Paul means for us to take a look at our own spiritual present in light of our spiritual past. In a sense, we need to compare ourselves to ourselves. What do I mean? I don't mean that we should measure ourselves by our own standards. I mean we need to take a good look at how the Spirit of God has been slowly conforming our hearts to the will of God. You're not perfect, but if you're a Christian, I'm sure the Holy Spirit has caused some kind of growth in your life, no matter how big or how small. As the older saints used to say, I may not be what I want to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. If you tend to feel superior, look at the maturity in your own life, no matter how big it is. And realize that it's all because of God's grace. And if you tend to feel inferior, look at the growth in your own life, no matter how small it may be, and realize that God really is doing something in you. The point is, when we stop the comparison game and look at how far we've come in our lives, we'll realize that it was God who gave us the increase. Here I could say something about some things that we typically use um, for our maturity, for Christian growth. Things like small groups, coming to church, discipleship things, you know, getting involved in mentoring relationships. All those things are good. All those things are for us. But they can be spoiled. They can be spoiled when we use them as a way to try to earn a cookie with God. Hey, look, God, you know, I've gone a small group like six months in a row. Now, where's the grace? Right. And what God is saying is in the midst of these small groups, in the midst of these mentoring relationships, that is my grace. That is my gift. That is the cookie in and of itself. It is as we find ourselves involved in those things that we begin to receive God's grace for us. It's not a way of earning it from him. So these things aren't magic items that we can store up in order to get into God's presence. No. The gospel teaches us that it is God who comes to us and meets us 
when we pray for each other, when we remind each other of Christ's work and words for his people, the Holy Spirit comes in power and lifts our souls to the Father. But this kind of grace can seem like a burden. Why? Because we're born conceited. We don't mind getting on the road through Jesus, but we seem too embarrassed to admit our utter need for his help along the way and to get to the end. But this is the kind of gospel confidence that points us both toward Jesus and toward each other. We need to be able to stand next to each other in our weakness, reminding one another of the work and words of Jesus, expecting the spirit of Christ to come and give us strength. The burden of grace is on God. When we begin to live more in God's grace for us on a moment by moment basis, we become more confident in pointing other people to this same Jesus who would do the same for them. Back to Lord of the Rings, um, one of the most beautiful scenes in the whole trilogy, maybe if not one of the most beautiful scenes in American cinema, is when Frodo gets to the last part of his journey and it looks like he's about to die. And Sam looks at Frodo and he sees him in his pain and in his agony And he realizes, you know, Frodo's right. I can't carry this ring. So then he looks to Frodo and he says, I may not be able to carry your burden, but I can carry you. You may not be able to fix her burden. You may not be able to fix his burden or her burden. But you can listen to her and you can point her to Jesus. But does Jesus know anything about my burdens? Does he know what it's really like to be left alone? Here's a better question. Were you there at Gethsemane? Were you there when he pleaded with his father as he felt pain and death getting closer? Were you there when he said, Father, please let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Were you there when the weight of his temptation brought the king of kings to tears that dropped as thick as blood? Were you there when he asked Peter, James and John, his inner circle of friends, to pray with them, only to have them fall asleep on him? Were you there when the perfect son of Abraham carried on his body the burden that no man can bear? And yet every man deserves the wrath of God. Were you there when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christians need the gospel just as much as anybody else, you know. The conflict within our souls between the sinful nature and the spirit, it can make us weary. We are always tempted to save ourselves in the midst of this broken world with all its collapsing bridges and its invisible children. We are always tempted to draft our own plans for a better world or to give up on that possibility altogether. We live, like I said, somewhere between delusion and despair. But God says, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden,
and I will give you rest. And then he also says, bear one another's burdens. It's like the little boy, you know, he's in his room at night and he's scared. He thinks there's a monster underneath his bed. So he goes to his daddy and he says, daddy, daddy, I think there's a monster in my room. And so, you know, the father goes in and, you know, he does a routine. He's looking underneath the sheets and, you know, tapping the walls, whatever, opening up the closet. And then finally he turns to his son and says, son, you don't have to worry because God is here with you. And then the son says, daddy, I know God is here, but I need someone with hands. We all want to feel grace too, don't we? Well, here we are, the body of Christ. God has given us to each other to constantly present one another to our King and Redeemer, who is Jesus Christ. He is the one who carries the burden of grace. And it is to him that we all must turn. My responsibility and your responsibility is not to aid each other in our delusion or despair, nor is it our responsibility to try to fix it. We are each beggars who are called to remind one another of who the bread of life is. I can't fix you, and you can't fix me. But there is one with the hands of a carpenter, the one who spoke the universe into existence and created all things good and beautiful. The scriptures say that those who believe in him are his workmanship. It is not my job to mold any of you, and don't you try to do it to me. It is enough for us to turn one another again to the work and words of Jesus for his people. Walking with Jesus, it's a long and it's a difficult road. But God never intended for us to do it alone. He gives us himself, and by his spirit, he gives us to each other. In the midst of our temptations, and in the midst of our trying times, God has given us grace to carry us home. Let's pray. Father, indeed, you have been gracious to us. You have come to us and you have called us to yourself. Father, within ourselves, we have no strength to cling to you. Would you even now come by your spirit and strengthen us? And also, would you remind us, Lord, that you hold us in your hands? Would you bring the healing, Father, that we need in order to learn how to trust one another? Lord, would you give us the healing that we need in order to learn how to be there for one another? God, I thank you that you have called us together to be your people, that you have given us real arms and hands to touch and to feel. God, bless us now. Be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.